0: This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. The desire to connect. It's a core drive for so many of us at work, with our friends, with our family. So why does it sometimes feel so hard? Well, in his new book, Super Communicators, Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter Charles Duhigg walks us through the steps to take to connect better, to communicate more effectively and more deeply. Now, drawing on the latest research in the fields of neuroscience and psychology, as well as some great storytelling, he explains how anyone Yes, anyone can become a super communicator. You may know Charles Duhigg as the author of The Power of Habit or Smarter, Faster, Better. He currently writes for The New Yorker and the full title of his new book, which is out today. It's called Super Communicators, How to Unlock the Secret Language of Connection. Charles Duhigg, welcome to Reset.
1: Thank you so much for having me on. This is such a treat. You know, this was a
0: funny interview to prepare for because I'm a journalist you're a journalist. We are supposed to be great communicators, right? Aren't we? <laughs> yeah. In theory,
1: right? In theory. But communication <laughs> is such a challenge. Why do you think that is? It, it absolutely is. And that was kind of one of the reasons I wrote this book is that um, I had two experiences. The first was that at the New York Times, they made me a manager and I was okay at the like logistics part and I was terrible at the communication part and then oftentimes i would come home and talk to my wife and my wife would say something like wait you're supposed to be good at communication right like you're like you're <laughs> professional what's going on the pressure and, and i and the pressure was huge and and i felt like i felt like there was something i was missing and so i started talking to these researchers and what they told me is we're living through this golden age of understanding communication for really the first time because of advances in neuroscience and data collection and they said, for the first time, we know how to unlock the parts of a conversation and make them better. And so that's why I wrote the book because I wanted to share that with people.
0: Yeah. Um, and early in the book, you list four rules. These are four rules for having meaningful conversations. Uh, one, pay attention to what kind of conversation is occurring. Two, share your goals and ask what others are seeking. Three, ask about others' feelings and share your own. And four, Explore if identities are important to this discussion. Now we'll we'll get into all of them, but first I want to zoom in on the uh, on the first one because I don't know Charles that many people actually begin conversations knowing what type of dialogue they're seeking. So say yeah. more on that.
1: So it, it, this actually the perfect illustration for this came from my own life where. I would come home after a long day at work and I would complain to my wife about my day and you know, my boss is a jerk. And and she very reasonably would try and solve my problem by saying like, why don't you take your boss out to lunch and you guys can get to know each other. But instead of being able to hear what she was saying, I would get even more upset. I would, I would say like, why aren't you supporting me? Why aren't you outraged on my behalf? And then she would get upset that I was upset. And so when I talked to these researchers, they told me, well, look, here's the problem that's occurring is that most people think a discussion is about one thing. It's about your day or about your kid's grades but actually every discussion is made up of different kinds of conversations. And and most of those fall into one of three buckets. There's these practical conversations where we're solving problems or making plans. There's emotional conversations where I tell you what I'm feeling and I don't want you to solve it for me. I want yes. you to empathize. And then there's social conversations, which is about how we relate to each other, how our social identities influence how we speak and hear. And they said, when in this situation, you were having an emotional conversation and your wife was having a practical conversation. And so you guys couldn't connect. This has led to what's known as the matching principle, which is you have to be having the same kind of conversation at the same time mm-hmm. if you really want to align with each other.
0: Yeah. Um, you, you write about reading a person's mood and energy and, and matching their mood and energy.
1: That's exactly right. L- Laughter is a great example of this. 80% of the time when we laugh, it is not response to something funny. Yeah, it's, it's because we're showing the other person we want to connect with them. And when they laugh back in the same basic energy, they're showing us that they want to connect with us in return.
0: I love that. And your example with your wife just leads me to, you know, my partner and I, we, we have this thing, it's been going for years where we say, All right, do you want me to give you advice or am I just listening here? Right? It's like
1: are you you're it, a super
0: communicator. Is you're this good just a vent session or and often I'm like, just listen.
1: <laughs> just shut up and listen. Just let so, me get it, it out. And it feels good when someone asks you that, right? It in schools they've actually started teaching teachers to do this that that when a student is having an issue, they should ask them, do you want me to help you? Do you want me to hear you? Or do you want me to hug you? Mm. And of course, those are the three conversations, the practical, the emotional, and the social. But it feels good when someone asks us what we need or want out of a conversation because mm-hmm. sometimes we don't know ourselves until someone does ask.
0: Yeah. To that end, in super communicators, what is this really about? That's the important yeah. question that you you touch on as well. because. I can't tell you the number of times that I've talked with someone and it feels like the words I'm hearing, they're actually just scratching the surface of the real message that they're trying to convey.
1: Absolutely, that's absolutely right. And and that that's usually happens at the start of a conversation. What's this really about? We're trying to figure out how we are going to talk to each other. Is it okay to tell jokes? Is it okay to interrupt? Or is this a very formal conversation? And we're trying to figure out what topics we both want to get to. Now, there's been a number of studies, including by some researchers at Harvard Business School, that found that people are very bad in general picking up on the signals that somebody wants to talk about something differently. Mm. And it's oftentimes because we pay too much attention to the words coming out of their mouth, instead of all the things around those words, including their tone of voice and their expression and how they're holding themselves. What we found is that oftentimes people fall into a habit of talking about what seems shallow we're here to discuss next week's budget. Yes, But when in truth, what's going on underneath is, I'm really anxious because if we don't get this right, we're gonna have to lay people off. And that really worries me. And so the yeah. way that we, what we wanna do is we wanna draw out those deeper topics. And and there's an easy way to do this, which is known as asking deep questions.
0: You You, in the same realm, describe the quiet negotiation that we participate in, right? Uh, a subtle give and take over which topics we're gonna dive into and what we're gonna skirt around. Very similar to what you were just talking about. And to me, it does make the most sense in that work setting that you described. Meetings that have a clear agenda. Uh, you even write about a jury deliberation scenario in, in the book here as well. But how easy it is is it to, to miss this step in our personal oh. conversations?
1: It's enormously easy, or you're right, workplaces, in a workplace, sometimes it feels awkward to ask like, what do you really want to talk about? Why, Why are we really here? But that's where these deep questions are so useful. A deep question is something that asks someone to talk about their values or their beliefs or their experiences. And they're much easier to ask than you would think. And a lot of this work comes from Nicholas Epley, who's at the University of Chicago. You know, If you bump into someone and you say, oh, what do you do for a living? And they say, I'm a lawyer. A deep question might be, oh, what made you decide to go to law school? Or, you know, what do you love about practicing the law? Or at work, if you bump, if someone says we need to talk about the budget, a deep question might be, what are your concerns about the budget or what do you make of the budget? Mm. That's an invitation for someone to say something real to you. Those are great suggestions. And when they do, that's when the negotiation starts. So we begin to understand what this person wants and how to share with them what we want.
0: Some of the best communicators I've come across in my personal life, as well as TV and radio, they're connecting with people deeply. What what you're saying Absolutely. makes total sense. They're really touching their hearts. Uh, you talk about the uh, the power of emotional intelligence, right? Yeah, and how understanding how people feel that's also a, a key component of great communication. I think it comes easier to some than others, though, Charles. And so, talk us through that, like the the difficulty of of channeling another person's feelings when you might have so much going on in your own life?
1: Yeah. No, it's a really good question. And and the truth is, we think that emotions don't pop up in conversations unless we're crying or smiling. But the truth is, emotions influence every single conversation. They influence how we hear, they influence what we say. And so it's important to acknowledge those feelings and look for opportunities to do so. But one of my favorite examples of this, and again, at the workplace, this is really true, mm-hmm. is that. You know, oftentimes before a meeting starts, you might be making conversation with the other people in the room and you say something like, oh, what'd you do this weekend? And they say, oh, you know, I went to my kid's graduation. It'd be very easy just to say, oh, congratulations. Oh, okay. Now let's get down to business. But if you just take a second and say, oh man, wait, like what did that feel like to like watch your kid walk across that stage? That's a deep question. It's an easy question to ask, but it's a deep question. And it gives the other person a chance to share their emotional experience with you. And when we are connected on an emotional level, it becomes much easier for us to have a practical conversation or to discuss something difficult or to give each other feedback. Mm-hmm. That emotional connection can happen just as easily as just acknowledging that someone said something and asking them how they feel.
0: Yeah. How many times do you walk by someone and they say, hey, how's it going? And you're like, good, yeah. <laughs> right. good, and you keep walking. No one no, no one made eye contact. We both just kept walking in our opposite directions. Did we accomplish anything from that converse, that exchange? Not really, but we acknowledged each other. There's a plus.
1: Yeah. yeah. And And it would take 10 seconds to be like, oh man, I'm doing okay. Like I had like a, you know, a good morning and I'm hoping for a good afternoon. How about you? Yeah. Right? Now, suddenly you're having a more real conversation. And again, it doesn't have to be long. Right, but it's that connection that you know when you're in a meeting together later on that day, you feel more trusting of each other, you like each other more. Right, it makes it easy.
0: In that scenario, I would just be afraid to get deep because by the time I start to respond, they're gone.
1: <laughs> <laughs> As I That's said, true. they've already walked you, off. <laughs> you don't have to get deep all the time, and you don't have to make everything into a conversation. So right? I, I so. just I just go back to the default good. That works too. I'm that good. works too. <laughs> <laughs> what else did you learn in this
0: process, Charles, about what is going on in a person's brain when we're trying to see things from another person's perspective and truly understand them?
1: Yeah, it's really interesting. What we've learned, and again, this comes from the last decade, is that when you're in a conversation with someone, your body and your brain starts to change to match them. So right now, we're talking to each other and we're separated by thousands of miles, but if we could detect it, what we would find is that our pupils are starting to dilate at similar rates. Our breath patterns are starting to match each other. And most importantly, the activity within our brains, our neural activity is starting to look similar. And that's what a conversation is. I describe a feeling or experience to you in such a way that you in a, in a part also experience that same feeling or also experience that same idea. That's why we're able to connect with each other is because our brains become aligned. Now, the question is, how do we do this why are some people better at it and because some people are some people can connect with almost anyone right these are known as super communicators and it's often because they're paying attention to what the other person is sending them so they're not Signals just born with story. it no no in fact what we know is that anyone can become a super communicator because it's just a set of skills that you can learn most consistent super communicators They actually tell you that when they were young, they had trouble making friends or their parents got divorced and they had to be the peacemaker. So they had to think a little bit more about communication than everyone else. And what a super communicator does that's really important is they show you that they want to connect with you because oftentimes oftentimes that feels vulnerable, Mm -hmm. that feels scary. But if we just ask someone, what did it feel like to, to watch your son walking across that stage? Or we laugh when they laugh, what we're showing them is I want to connect with you. And that's all the invitation most people need.
0: Listening is so important too, right? Why do some Absolutely. people have a tough time really listening in conversation? Yeah, it's,
1: it's a really good question. And a lot of the research has been done, on, particularly on situations where we're having hard conversations, right? Where there's some conflict or we disagree with each other. And what we found is that even if we're listening, the other person might not realize it. And in fact, in a tough conversation, in the back of our head, sometimes we're suspicious. Is this person listening or are they just waiting their turn to speak? So what we need to do is we need to prove that we're listening. And we do that by saying something after they finish talking. There's a technique known as looping for understanding, which they teach at Harvard and Stanford, and all kinds of places. And it has three steps. The first step is ask a question, preferably a deep question. The second step is once they've answered that question, repeat back in your own words what that person has said. And then finally, and this is what most people forget, ask if you got it right. Now we've all experienced this, right? Somebody looping us and and proving that they heard what we said, yes. and it feels amazing. You, you feel like you feel like you want to listen to them because they've obviously listened to yes, you. Yes,
0: but I've also experienced the opposite, where I can yes. absolutely tell you are not listening to anything I just said.
1: That's exactly right, right? And and it feels terrible. It feels like you can't trust this person. Now sometimes we can't listen because we're in our own heads too much, and that's why looping for understanding is really useful as well, is because. If my assignment in this conversation is to repeat back to you what you said in my own words or to ask you a follow-up question that shows that I'm processing this, mm-hmm. I have to pay attention to you. I can't get in my own head because I have this assignment. I got to I got to I got to make note of what you're saying so I can say it back.
0: Absolutely. This one might be tough to put a number on, Charles, but after researching and writing the book, how much of communication would you say is actually non-linguistic? Like this. This is something you get into in the book when talking about NASA, of all places.
1: Yeah, yeah. So about half of our conversations do not involve words. Now they're not necessarily nonverbal, right? They might involve noises we make, or they might involve, um, you know, how we our tone of voice, or they might be nonverbal. They might be our expressions or how we hold our body. And you're exactly right. One of my favorite stories from the book is about NASA because in the early 1980s, NASA decided they needed more astronauts who had emotional intelligence. But the problem is they couldn't figure out of the candidates who, had, who actually had emotional intelligence and who faked it really, really well. Oh. And so one of the psychologists, he realized that if he paid attention to how people laugh, that he would be able to figure out who wants to connect with him. So what he would do is he would walk into a room holding a bunch of papers and he would spill them as if on an accident when it was actually on purpose. And then he would laugh this huge laugh, <laughs> And then he'd pay attention. Did the candidate he was about to interview, did they chuckle back politely? Because <laughs> we all know we're supposed to laugh if someone else laughs. Or did they match him? Did they, did they laugh too and say, ha, <laughs> I'm sorry. Here, let me help you pick those up. <laughs> the people who laugh back the same way, they're the ones who want to connect. They're the ones with emotional intelligence. They're showing us. That they understand something happened that was just that, that was a little bit vulnerable, and they're matching our vulnerability and making it okay.
0: I love that example so much.
1: It's wonderful, isn't it? And, yeah. and now, now if anyone applies NASA, they know. <laughs> laugh the just same laugh. way that they it, right?
0: <laughs> <laughs> laugh your way through the entire interview. <laughs> well, I mean, on the flip side, some of the toughest conversations uh, that we. Have. I mean, they come during times of high conflict. Yeah. What strategies would you say you learned about communicating in stressful situations or communicating when people uh, disagree with you strongly?
1: Yeah. So it, there's a couple of things. And the first is that looping for understanding. That's a really powerful tool when you're in conflict with someone. But the second thing is to try and define what the goal of this conversation is. And, and oftentimes we go into a conversation thinking, my goal is to convince you of something. My goal is to make you listen to me, because then I think you'll agree with me. But the goal of a conversation ought to be just simply to understand each other, for you to understand me and for me to understand you. And even if we walk away still disagreeing with each other, but we understand each other, then that conversation is a success. And one of the elements of that is figuring out what we're trying to control. Because when we're in conflict, oftentimes we have an urge for control and we try and control the other person. We say like, I'm not gonna talk about that. Or mm-hmm. or we try and control their emotions and say, oh, oh, you felt that? You shouldn't have felt, you shouldn't have been upset. That, that wasn't worth getting upset about. Mm-hmm. What's much better, and we know this from marriage therapy, studies of marriage therapy, is instead of trying to control the other person, take that urge for control and control things together. Like the environment. If a fight starts at two in the morning, say, okay, look, let's wait until 10, when we're both well rested and the sun's up, or, or if a bite is about, starts about whether we're, where we're gonna go for Thanksgiving, and it could easily spill over to, your mother hates me and we don't have enough money, what researchers refer to as kitchen sinking, which mm-hmm. is toxic in a relationship. Absolutely. Let's control together the boundaries of this discussion. Let's say, we're just gonna talk about Thanksgiving, no talking about money. When we're controlling something together, even if we disagree with each other, we feel like we can make progress, yeah. and that's important.
0: I love that. I especially don't do well when someone tries to control when we have the discussion. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Let's talk about it right now. Well, maybe I'm not ready to talk about it right a- now.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And it feels like they're trying to control you instead of asking permission saying, look, would you like to talk about this now or would it be better if we waited a couple of hours so we can kind of get our thoughts in order? You know. And, and my guess is, and, and tell me if, I, if this is wrong. You'd mentioned your partner. Yes. And it sounds like you guys have pretty good communication habits. We do. But oh, it that, wasn't so,
0: always that that way. Yeah. It didn't start that way.
1: And was it something you deliberately worked on? Did you talk about, we need to communicate better?
0: Yes, because I am a natural communicator. Uh, it was very important for me to understand why we weren't seeing eye to eye in some situations where I knew very well that, oh my gosh, there's a solution here. I can see it. It's over there. For some reason, we can't arrive at that same place, uh, yeah. and so I would sort of slow it down and, and sort of gently ask, you know, when we could talk about something, and, and try my best not to control. I was the person trying to talk about it right now, uh, right. and and I realized, okay, no, he needs time. And then when he comes totally collected, we have the best conversation, and I forget what we what the
1: conflict was even about. And and what I love about about your example is that it ties so much into what we know, which is that we are born with the ability to be super communicators. We're born ability, with the ability to communicate. Mm-hmm. Communication is homo sapiens superpower. Yeah. It is what has caused us to su- succeed as a species so well. And and we have these instincts. Evolution has given us these instincts on how to communicate, but sometimes, sometimes we can forget them. Right sometimes when we're talking online to someone we can forget how 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 important it is to be a little bit polite right? instead of screaming. And so one of the things that in writing super communicators I tried to do is take all this recent science and say look here are the skills and tools that we you know super communicators use. And they are skills and tools that will feel very natural to you because your brain has evolved to to default into this. You just need to be reminded of them sometimes until they become habit.
0: Now, Charles, I'm wondering how technology can get in a super communicator's
1: way. Well, it it doesn't have to. And the answer is that we have to recognize that different forms of communication have different rules. And it's easy to forget that. One of my favorite examples of this is that about 100 years ago, when phones first became popular, there were all these papers saying, no one will ever use a phone for a real conversation because you can't see each other. Mm-hmm. And at the time they were right. If you The transcripts of those early conversations are stilted and and people are just kind of using it to to give stock orders or grocery orders to each other, like a telegraph. But by the time you and I and everyone else were teenagers, we could talk on the phone for like seven hours in a stretch, right? <laughs> Absolutely. And, and it's because we learned how to use telephones. and We learned that there's different rules. When you're talking to someone on the phone, even if you don't realize it, you tend to over enunciate your words. You put more emotion in your voice because you know that they can't see you. Now, the problem is that online, we've been talking to each other for like maybe 20 years. And when it comes to Slack and emojis and what my kids do on their phone, Mm -hmm. like that's three years old. I don't even understand it. And so as a result, we don't know those rules quite as well. And it's easy in the speed of a day to forget that talking to someone online, talking to someone via an email versus a text versus a phone call, they all require something slightly different. Yes. And if we don't remind ourselves of that, then we, pretend, we, we treat an email like a face-to-face conversation. And we say something sarcastic, assuming they can hear the sarcasm in our voice. Mm-hmm. And of course they can't. Tell me more about the
0: process of putting super communicators together. How much, how much of this was research versus just your awesome storytelling skills and, and lived Uh-oh. experience?
1: Thank you, it, it, it was mostly reporting, right? Because I'm a, I'm a reporter from the New York Times, now the New Yorker, I spent about three years talking to researchers and going into laboratories and talking to people who are super communicators. One of my favorite stories in the book is about this CIA officer who, when he first gets hired, is absolutely terrible at his job. It's his job to recruit overseas spies And everyone he tries to recruit in Europe is like, nope, not going to do it. I'm going to report you to the the authorities and get you reported. (laughs) So then he eventually meets this one woman who's in town from the Middle East. She works for her country's foreign ministry. She's on vacation. He gets to know her a little bit. He tells her he works for the CIA and he wants to work with her. And she just panics. She says, like, in my country, they kill people for that. And so he convinces her to have one more dinner with him. And in the dinner, it becomes clear this is hopeless. He's not going to be able to recruit this woman. In fact, he's going to get fired because he's just terrible at this job. And so he just gives up and he decides to be as honest as he could be and say, Mm -hmm. he tells her like, look, I I understand that you're scared to go home because you feel disappointed in yourself. I feel disappointed in myself too, because I'm so bad at this job. And it's when they're both vulnerable with each other that they can hear and trust each other. And it's at that moment that she says, okay, I'm willing to work with you. And she becomes the best asset in the Middle East for the next 20 years. But it's only because they engaged in this reciprocal authenticity because they were vulnerable with each other. Mm. And that's what we need to do in all of our conversations when we can.
0: Absolutely. Who comes to mind for you, Charles, when you think of someone who's really good at making meaningful conversation? And then what makes
1: them so good? So I'm gonna ask you a question and the listeners too, because I think, I think that the answer will pop in your head. When you're having a bad day and you want to call someone who you know will make you feel better, mm-hmm. do you Do you know who you would call? Absolutely. Who is it?
0: Uh, my One of my best friends. Her name's Abena. Uh,
1: Abana. So Abana <laughs> for you is a super communicator. Oh, and yeah. you're probably a super communicator for her. You yes. guys know how to connect with each Just other. Just last week, Charles. <laughs> <laughs> it's wonderful, isn't it? It feels yes. so good. Yes. And my, yes. my guess is that Abina is not like the most charismatic friend you have, or the most extroverted friend you have. She might not even be like the the smartest or most successful friend you have, but she knows how to connect with you. Yeah, what she's we know-
0: she's she's there when I need her. Her timing. She's she's a busy individual. She's a very successful woman. She's not as much of an extrovert as I am, so she's not on social media. She doesn't take part in any of that stuff, but. I know those 10 digits to dial
1: <laughs> yeah. when, I, when
0: I'm when i in need, and, and she's the one for sure. Cause she, and it feels she, like a
1: lifeline, right? Yes,
0: and she breaks things down to me in a way that I just
1: hadn't thought of. She knows how to listen to you. She knows how to prove that she's listening to you. She knows how to ask you the right questions, the deep questions mm-hmm. that help you understand what's going on. We all so when you ask me like who is a super communicator yeah. I can point to there's lots there's like Barack Obama right and Bill Clinton and Ronald Reagan there's there's these high profile super communicators but the most meaningful ones are actually the people in our own life yeah because the truth is Abena probably is that person with many many different others right she probably knows how to do this and there are these folks who are consistent super communicators and it's not because they're more charismatic it's not because they're more ex- bigger extroverts. It's simply because they've learned a couple of skills Mm -hmm. and they think like half an inch deeper about how communication works.
0: I found it fascinating in the who are we section of super communicators. You dove into how we bring our social identities to to conversations like our backgrounds, our families, the causes that we believe in. Break down for me your definition of social identities in in this context, because it's... more than just, I'm black and you're white. I'm pro-gun and you're anti-gun. I'm an immigrant, you're not.
1: In fact, it has to be more than that for us to really get, for us to have a meaningful conversation. Because the truth is that all of us contain multiple identities. And it's when we acknowledge those identities in a conversation that we bring our full selves to the discussion. If I started a conversation, I said, you're know, you black and I'm white, and so I wonder how you think about policing. That would be so reductionist, right? Like mm-hmm. it's already pushing you and me both into these stereotypes right. that is limited. But if I say, you know, you're a black woman and I know that you have a partner, and I know that you you're a reporter, and so you probably hear from both victims and perpetrators of violence. And and I imagine that you've grown up in places where you've seen where you know cops, maybe even related to a cop, or or maybe you've seen the cops impact your family's life mm-hmm. by introducing all of those different identities into the conversation when i say what do you think about policing what i'm doing is i'm giving both of us the opportunity not to not to be shallow not to be seen through the lens of a stereotype but rather to say you know the truth is i have complicated thoughts about this cuz i see it from so many different perspectives that's what that. a social conversation does really well when it succeeds
0: i love that because it, as i read that section of the book i was thinking all right, Charles, but many people find it difficult to to trust that other person, if, especially if we don't see eye to eye, right? Uh, yeah. And and they, they don't think like me. So how do I even break the ice in that circumstance?
1: I think a lot of it is simply acknowledging, right? It's, it's very often that we do not acknowledge our differences in a conversation. The fact that you're black and I'm white, that we don't bring that up. Even if we're talking about a topic like race, where it's really important, and so sometimes just acknowledging it, but acknowledging all the different identities yeah. that someone possesses, not just one of them, that says to someone, look, I see you. Like I see that you are a black woman and you're also a professional and you're a journalist and you're someone who is in a relationship where it sounds like you guys really learn to communicate with each other. You are a complex person. And at that point I can say, look, given given your experiences that are different from mine, how do you see the world differently? I want to understand.
0: Yeah. I love that. Another example in the book that I thought was pretty timely—you wrote about uh, how a doctor named Jay Rosenblum how he he, how he navigated talking about as well as recommending vaccinations to his patients. Now, this is you know this goes back to the late '90s, but I want you to talk a bit more about his story and and how it relates to what we've learned about the psychology of vaccine resistance, right? Or so-called anti vaxxers from this covid era.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, a lot of what we know really became imp- important during covid because obviously there were a lot of people who who chose not to get the vaccine. Right. And initially the National Institutes of Health what they told doctors was, "Oh, just give them the facts. If you give them the facts, then then they'll change their mind. They'll they'll understand that this vaccine is safe." And all the doctors said, "No. You don't understand They've been on the internet for 100 hours. They know all of the facts, like there's nothing I can tell them. They they might believe different facts than I do, but I'm not going to convince them my facts are right and theirs are wrong, because if I do that, I'm entering into these very shallow identities, right? I'm a doctor, so I know better. You're an ignorant patient, so you don't know what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. So then the advice changed, and this is what was successful, is they started saying, use this technique known as motivated, motivated interviewing. And it corresponds to what we were just talking about. Coming into a room and saying, "Listen, I know that you um, that you don't want the vaccine, but I also know that you're a grandfather and you worry a lot about your kid's health. Tell me tell me what you make of the best way for us to protect you and to protect your family, and then just listen and show you're listening." And what they found is that if they did this instead of making an argument, instead of trying to convince. They prove to the person that they want to understand them. Then, at that point, the person became much more amenable mm. to hearing different different perspectives. That's how you got. It. That's how doctors got anti-vaxxers to get the shot. Was not by trying to give them facts or trying to prove something to them. It was to by listening, genuinely listening, to why they didn't want it in the first place and what their worries were.
0: This part was truly, truly eye-opening. Zooming out, what do you think we lose? What do we lose out on when we don't have meaning com- meaningful conversations with other people?
1: It, we lose a lot. You know, one of the largest studies of human happiness is known as the the Adult Study of uh, the Harvard Study of Adult Development. It's been going on for almost a hundred years, and they followed thousands of people through their lives, and they found that the single greatest determinant of whether you're healthy and happy at age sixty five is if you have strong connections to at least two or three other people when you're age 45 mm, that's it. and of course there's there's nothing magic about 45 it's just that you know by then you've sort of built up these relationships people who don't have strong relationships with others they live they, they get sicker faster in fact the surgeon general just said that loneliness is the equivalent of, of 15 cigarettes a day yeah they're they're much less happy. And so the question becomes, how do we establish these connections? How do we develop those relationships with a small handful of people or a large number of people that are really genuine connections? And the answer is almost through conversation. And it doesn't matter how frequently that conversation happens. One of my closest friends, I talk to him on the phone every six months and and That's we get six months. on each yeah, six months. six months goes by. he he lives abroad. He's busy. I'm busy. Wow. I thought when when my friends and I go one month, I, I feel terrible <laughs> <laughs> six right. months so, but different people have different have different needs, right and, and different patterns we fall into. But what matters is that when we talk to each other, it's a real conversation. Mm-hmm. We feel connected to each other. I know that he's one of my best friends, even if I haven't checked in with him lately. Yeah. We lose a lot when we don't know how to have conversations with each other.
0: My mom would say it's, it's like you know it's like you didn't skip a beat.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. And it feels so good, right? Yeah. Our our brains have actually evolved to crave connection. That's what helped us build families and then villages and then communities. We want that connection. And the key to it is just learning how to have real conversations. And and the good news is Anyone can do it. It's just a set of skills that are pretty easy to make into habits.
0: That's Charles Duhigg, his new book, Super Communicators, How to Unlock the Secret Language of Connection. It's out today and it's available wherever books are sold. Thank you so much for joining us, Charles.
1: Thank you for having me on. I
0: learned a lot, this was great.
1: Oh, thank you.